We're, we're in a series on the, the power of, of our words. And last week we, we got into the realm of how connection and disconnection is just no more than us choosing to step into what we do with our words. And um, I think it's, in, it's interesting that the time and the season of, of looking at the calendar, sometimes um, I also wanted to, to, to say a couple things on the coronavirus. It feels like that week where it's gotten significant enough that every church, every organization under the sun has to say something because of just the, the, the extent of which things have gotten to. Um, so real quick before I forget that, um, I sent an email out this week. If you, if you don't get our emails, just uh, shoot us um, uh, our details on our website. We'd love to get that to you. But in short, we want to be people, um, when we face something like this in society that's kind of got a global uh, impact, we want to be wise, we want to be uh, diligent, cautious, and yet we don't want to be heavy, we don't want to be fearful, and we don't want this to distract from the work that God is doing. We really do feel that on a global scale, there's also some really profound things happening uh, of the Lord and of the Spirit happening right now, and, and that there is a bit of the, the potential posture to allow something that needs some caution to, to take us outside of, of wisdom and cautiousness into fear, anxiety, and all the other downward, downward spirals that can, that can bring. Someone mentioned, was it Jared this morning, who was, who was telling me, it's like, if you're not careful, you can realize that, man, we've got time change, coronavirus, a full moon, and Friday the 13th, all this week. <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus. You know, it's just like, it's, it's all perspective. You get real heavy real fast. You want to get weird. Let's do it. I've, uh, I think we've all got some kind of relative that's got all kinds of canned goods loaded up in the basement. <laughs> He's probably got some, some protection and some uh, modes of, of to carry things out. At the same time, there's a really high chance that our supply chains are going to dry up. And if you didn't load up on some things, even if nothing happens, if you didn't plan, you're probably going to be asking some friends for some help. So there is a reality that... that um, we need to, to step out in caution, and we, we forwarded just what the CDC and for religious organizations and so forth are doing. So what we want to do is just say, if, if you're sick or, or, or just have any kind of sense that, like, it's probably not a good idea to be um, around people, just stay home, and, and that's totally fine, and we're going to assume the best about you in the process. <laughs> and, and then, as with everything else, you know, the 20-second hand washing with hot water, the disinfections... The, the whatever it is we're going to kick or arm grab or I don't know, I don't know how to agree. I'm going to be the most awkward person here as I interact with you. I, I covenant with you to be awkwardly still exchanging life in whatever I can to not exchange germs. So all that to say is um, it's going to be completely, beautifully fine and more than fine. Let's take a posture of instead of this going like, oh, I hope this blows over and doesn't become a big deal. Christians throughout all history look at any crisis or potential crisis as opportunity. This is an opportunity. People, whenever there is some kind of angst, they become softened to people speaking a word of peace and purpose and life. Use those opportunities. Use those opportunities. I've also been just a little bit convicted where you know, our, our immediate world in our home is little people, which they say, obviously, is not at threat with this virus um, to the extent that the older um, 
folks are. So at the same time, there are a lot of people that live with older folks um, that, that are maybe not worried about themselves, but are actually quite concerned that they bring stuff in. And, and we just don't, there's a lot of unanswered questions. So let's, let's also just have a, you know, even as we, you know, I've been probably the first, I like to use humor. But I want the humor to be gauged with just like a, a sensitivity as well. I think it's, it's completely uh, insensitive of us to also not realize that there are those that are living in a lot of, a lot of real uh, anxiety, that those that they love might be able to, to have something go, go, go wrong, and heaven forbid that would happen. So we want to be a place where we can walk into that tension, but also utilize the open opportunity to bring the, the shalom and the peace of heaven. So can we do that together and not be people that respond and react out of fear? Amen. All right. So the decade of the mouth, I spoke a little bit on that last week, and my wife is going to just remind us of why this is kind of a super cool moment in our history at the year, what, 5780 on the Hebrew calendar? Go. So last week, if you didn't get a chance to be here, his sermon, I was in kids' ministry. I had to listen to it this week. It's incredible. I got a few details wrong with my Karen Kapelian story that I might correct later, but (laughs) it was a really, really good sermon. And he tapped into the decade of the mouth, 5780, which is the Hebrew calendar that began 5,780 years ago. And while we're not necessarily a couple or people that live our lives and build our lives on a number where today's the day of salvation, every day. You should always speak words of life. But we'd be admiss to ignore that there's something special in the spirit realm that this 10 years, God's highlighting the mouth. Because we'll have 80, 81, 82, 83, 84. Um, but the highlighting of the mouth, and you talked on this last week, is really... D- honing in on the power of the tongue, exploring the principle of how powerful our words are. Proverbs 18.21 tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. That's 21. But if you rewind to verse 20, it says the fruit of the mouth, from the fruit of the mouth, one's stomach is satisfied. The yield of the lips brings satisfaction. The yield of the lips brings satisfaction. What comes forth out of your mouth has transformative power. And that's what we're going to kind of begin to explore today. Why he's even, um, I guess you haven't coined it, many people have coined it, but the decade of declarations. Because out of our mouth we speak, we declare, we confess, we pray, we praise. There's a lot of things we do with our mouth. And it's really the, ability, the one thing we have that separates us from all else in this world. Animals cannot speak, but humans can. So it's a very significant part of our makeup. Yeah, good. So um, some of the takeaways last week, we, we mentioned how the word of God is so significant. Uh, I'm still kind of <laughs> amazed at that little study that I shared with you about how just at once, twice, three times a week, if you get into the Word, the study shows that it almost has no effect on your life in terms of when they, they see the effect that the, getting in the Word of God in your life has. As soon as you hit four times a week that you're in the Word, radical things happen. Uh, like depression drops by 30%. Uh, 
the, the negative speak and the, the, your, your relationships and the effectiveness of your marriage is like 60%. Pornography drops 60%. The sharing of your faith goes up 200%. It's amazing what happens when you get the Word of God in you. And we call it God's Word because it is legitimately the, the, what we have on paper passed down through generations of the testament of God interacting in the story of mankind. And on that, we have a standard of what God declares as true about us and who we are and how we're a part of what he's doing into the earth. And so when we get the word in us, it has something that's then deposited that allows us to agree with something. The story of all of humankind started in a garden and in that garden, what comes in and starts to fall is a lie that gives the opportunity for us to then agree. Adam and Eve agreed with the lie. The lie had no weight and no power until there was agreement. In agreement, you empower the liar. And so what we want to speak on today is the power of agreement. And the question we want to bring before you is, what is it that you agree with? Why and with what do you agree? The power of agreement. The power of agreement has in it death and life. There's always two trees in the garden, and there's always two opportunities with what we agree with. And what comes out of our mouth is a declaration of what we're agreeing with in our hearts. And so uh, to start with a bit of the more sober side of this story, uh, let's, let's look at some scriptures that are... Um, the Proverbs. The Proverbs is a, is a wisdom literature, and in the wisdom literature, it's actually really effective to, I, I often like when people like cut and grab a verse here and there out of like the Gospels or something, I'm always like, whoa, 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 make sure you know the context there. It's really easy to, to take that verse and do something kind of stupid. But with Proverbs, one of the things I love about the book of Proverbs is you can take pretty much any statement, verse, chapter, or just like phrase, and it's meant to kind of be read like that with these wisdom phrases that are meant to go deep into your spirit and remind you of the practical elements of the wise lived life. And so I, I want us to read a couple. She just started with Proverbs 18. Uh, let's go to Proverbs 6 um, and starting in verse 16. Again, we're going to get to the good news. This is the bad news about your tongue. Are you ready? <laughs> That was pretty bad um, interaction there. Okay, okay. Proverbs 6, I'm just going to read it. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Am I reading the right version? Yeah, good. Uh, here they go. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, and a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Mm. Isn't that uplifting? <laughs> mm, just let that go deep in your spirits. I, I, this is sometimes when we when we do teachings, we tend not to just sit a little bit in the warnings of Scripture. And what we have here is, I think, something that's kind of interesting. When you just look at the things that the Lord really hates, at least several of them, maybe four things here, would, could be summed up with elements that come out of the tongue: lying false witness, stirring up conflict, uh, uh, that has everything to do with like gossipers, people that like put in just like thoughts and lies and doubts and junk. And you know what? I, I think I don't know these kinds of people in our midst. I don't know if we have to that degree. 
And so I think we often gloss over those elements. At the same time, whenever we put in a word that isn't washed in the life-giving hope of the gospel, you know, it could be something of this person, oh, they really bother me. Or that pastor, why does he always do that on the microphone? Or, <laughs> that wasn't funny, that was, all right. <laughs> there could be anything where you just are sowing a seed of some kind of negative speak, talk, whatever else. In that seed form, and there are varying levels of speak that aren't as bad. Telling someone, you know, that you don't like their shirt is not telling them that, that they are horrifically horrible human being and I wish you died. Not the same thing. Um, but they, in the seed form of negative speech is the degree of this. I think that's often why with Scripture, when they speak of the, the, the tenacity and the depth and the seriousness of the tongue, they go, they go full in, these verses, on how bad it gets and how serious it is because what you're supposed to pick up underneath it is any direction your tongue starts to take, if it's not uplifting, it's a downward spiral. So I just want us to kind of take a moment and just reflect on the seriousness of what we have. There's only two directions that your tongue can take. And it's, it's truth or lies. And the reality is, truth isn't always reality. I think oftentimes when we say, yeah, the, the opposite of a lie is a truth. It's not. The opposite of a lie is something bathed in the potential for truth to be that reality. Now, what does that mean? That means this. When I tell my son, you're a good boy. God has great plans for you. You're not a failure. You're an amazing, gifted speaker. When you say that to someone that has a stutter, you're not speaking reality. You're speaking promise. You're speaking a prophetic decree of something that's possible, and your, your words actually have life-giving potential to bring about something that's not currently true. Death and life is in the power of the tongue, not just truth or lies. When we start, though, and define it with lies and truth, I think we need to redefine what that means. A lie isn't always not true, and truth isn't always true. What's, what's underneath a lie and what's underneath a truth is death and life. And the enemy came in, and he, told, and he started them to question on things that were legitimate questions. And he started, and he often starts, he speaks lies by speaking truth, because underneath the lying truth is death. And what we're inviting into is life. And so we often need to start speaking things that don't exist until they become true. And so what I, I, I want us to, to, to take hold of is the power of our prophetic decree. And, and that second lie that I, I want us to, to talk about is um, Proverbs 26. Um, and she's going to put that up in a second. And I want to read that real fast. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. People who shrug off deliberate deceptions, saying, I didn't mean it, I was only joking, are worse than careless campers who walk away from smoldering campfires. How do you like that translation? Yeah, especially in California is what should be at the end of that translation. You walk away from a smoldering campfire, 
you probably just burned down hundreds of thousands of acres. Yeah, so the, the, the thing here is, I was only joking. I think that was, I had an issue with that growing up, and, and a little bit of one when we entered our marriage, and you took care of that, didn't you? A little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit. A little yeah. bit. And, and uh, here's the thing. When you, when you rationalize, I was just joking with someone, what you're really, what's the root issue going on? The root issue is that you need to address something that they just did. And it's easier for me to address it in a jest than for me to lovingly move forward towards them and work out what the issue is. I'd rather just kind of nonchalantly not be intimate in our connection and just address it with humor. Not the right time. Because usually the person that is addressing in a joke, they're addressing something that probably needs to be addressed. It could be something about like making a joke about her being late all the time, which may or may not be true. Don't feel built up. <laughs> Don't feel But up. you know what has never worked is joking about it. That is giving still, our still relationship. Doesn't. Still doesn't. Did not work. in this moment. No. <laughs> Don't feel up. I was just using it as an example, not A little saying, too real. Little too real. A little bit too real. <laughs> Wasn't in my notes, should have made it a note. Yep, okay. for so, a reason. So the point, <laughs> the point being, when you make a joke about something, you are, you're literally avoiding the opportunity to move towards someone in love and restore connection. It's impossible to use a joke to restore connection. People don't feel connected when you're joking. Now, when, when can humor be, be effective? You know, my favorite time to use humor is like when we're all bawling our eyes out like at a funeral or at something that's really sad that we've gone through. And it's like, then you say something and there's just this genuineness of the humor that's like actually a bonding agent. And then it's like happy, turns into happy tears or something like that. Uh, so it's, it's not about that joking is bad. It's about how do you use something in jest. And so th- these are just a couple examples. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're believing the lie that just kidding is a way to communicate, and you're, with your tongue, you're wrong. And then the, the second lie we want to highlight is about free speech. Um, we don't really have the right to free speech. We have this concept of, of uh, in our, yeah, yeah, you know where I'm going with this, amen. Uh, our, our country, thankfully, free speech is a huge deal. What free speech is, is it allows you to say anything without the consequence of the government punishing you. There are still consequences for what you say. There are always consequences for what you say. For instance, what I just said. There will be consequences later for what I just said. <laughs> and, and so just take that as a reminder. There's... <laughs> I, I, uh, I, watched, I watched a TED Talk this week. Um, I'm not, I'm not using TED Talks in examples as much as I used to, mostly because like, they're almost becoming comical where every person that gives a TED Talk seems to have the same posture and, and the same kind of funny demeanor in the way they give it. Um, but this, this woman, Josephine Lee, gave, gave this talk on the transforming power of words. And it was, it was kind of fun because she reminds me of, well, a little bit of myself and a little bit of a lot of you, where she's uh, a Korean woman that came here when she was 10 with her parents, and she shared how there's this term in Korean, maybe some of you know it, and hopefully I'm pronouncing it somewhat um, right, nunchi. Yep. 
few of you, Nunchi, what that means is, is a person's ability to read between the lines or to read a situation, right? And so Korea and a lot of the, the East are high-context societies, meaning that someone can say something, but you're supposed to be able to read between the lines of what's really happening. And we think we have that in, in the U.S., but we, we don't really have that. Like, we, we, we have the whole, like, how are you doing, babe? And she's like, fine. And I can then go, yes, I see that you're not fine. What's the matter? But that, that is something where, where you have to understand that that's not really, that's not really high context. That's, that's low context. In a, in a high context culture, everything from your body language, your hand gestures, your body movement are all important to interpret words. And so um, she gives this <clears throat> example of this tribe, the Himba tribe, where they did this study and they didn't have a word for the, for the term blue. They had a whole lot of terms for the, for the term green. And so when, when they did this study, they had all these greens, and then they had a blue, and they couldn't describe the blue because they didn't have a term for it. Um, and, and then essentially, they, they flip-flopped, and they then tested kind of Westerners that had the, a term for blue, but we didn't have multiple terms for green. And so what happens was they, they realized that, that a single word can change our world. It was, it was high context, low context, the reality that some cultures have a, a bunch of words for one thing and they have no word for something else. And therefore, what they found was um, we cannot see what we can't describe. And is it possible then that the words can change everything? Just one word. And she gives this example in her own life where she she was brought into uh, the, the juvenile detention center system, and she goes in, and her first response when she sees and interacts with the, these kids is that they're all so different from her. They're all so different, which you can imagine the context of going in there. And, and so that's essentially the first lie that she's believing. But it's true. They are different. But the lie she's believing is is that there's no commonality, there's nothing we can do, this is going to be tough and this is going to be hard, right? And so what, what happens then is she has these couple examples where one, one kid just in the middle, like they had a hard time like really respecting authority and he just like gets up and he's, there's a guard there and he just walks out and he knows he's going to have his free time taken away, he goes, I don't even care, and just leaves. And as she kind of starts to get to know them, uh, she has this experience with this other kid where she kind of just sits with him, and, and, and he's, he's kind of just staring off in the space, not paying attention. And, and she kind of just goes, like, you know, if I, you're not going to be able, I can't help you if you don't exchange with me. And she, she kind of just gently starts to get up to leave. And then she, he just reaches out and touches her arm. And she comes back, in, and he goes, I'm scared. I'm turning 18 next month. I don't know what's going to happen to me when they transition me to the, to the full-blown adult prison. And so there was this exchange of life in that moment. And the kid broke the rule. He breaks the rule because they're not allowed to touch, they're not allowed to leave, they're not allowed to do all these things. But in a moment, there was this exchange of life by breaking the rule. And, and it reminds me of Jesus. You know, that woman with the issue of blood, that in the middle of a crowd, she's not even supposed to be there. She's got this issue that everyone says is unclean. You get as far away from everyone else. You go to the edge of town. There's special places for you. She takes the risk. She breaks the rules. And in a moment, she touches him, and he realizes there's an exchange. And then he speaks 
the words of life over her. Her options changed because she was able to feel and she spoke with her hands and she realized what was actually available in a moment. And so the beautiful thing about her little example there with these kids in the detention hall is she started to realize that one word can change these kids' lives. So she, they're all guys in this classroom. She started addressing them as gentlemen. And what happens? They started slowly acting like gentlemen. They were not gentlemen when she started calling them gentlemen. And that kid that start, would just get up and leave with the consequences, all of a sudden there was this moment where he got up and she's like, here we go, he's leaving class again. And he goes and gets a chair and he goes and puts it next to her and goes, Mrs. Lee, would you like to sit down? And all of a sudden, that lie that she believed turned into a prophetic decree where her word turned into life and it had eternal value. That's the power of one word. And so if that's the power of when we agree and we shift from agreeing with death to agreeing with life, just imagine the potential that the rest of our life can have. So point number one that we want to start to get into with this, this shifting into a life of agreement and promise and life. Why agree with words that are healing? Because ultimately, her word just brought them from a place of absolute sickness in every area of life. They weren't physically sick, but they were living in a lifestyle that was absolutely of death and it was, it was sick. And by one person coming in and decreeing gentlemen, an identity over them that was different than everything that they had previously had. It changed their options, and with their agreement, their options shifted. And so why do we need to agree with these words of healing? One, it shifts the entire mentality of our life. And you're going to unpack that a bit more for us. Um, I am going to a little bit unpack that and yeah, to sort of, cause the big question is why, why do our words have power? Why do our words bring healing? Um, and I'm going to, you didn't know I was going to do this, but I'm going to read from Joshua. It's Joshua 1, 8. And it says this, it says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate it. And the word meditate actually means to utter or to make a sound. Day and night, that you may observe it to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. So it's this key of the why is Joshua was instructed to implement, implement nonstop speaking, declaring of truth as he prepared to possess the promise that God had already given him. So this whole prophetic promise, it's like declaring words of life. In the supernatural, you're actually pulling down that promise into our present tense reality when we're agreeing with what God's saying. And so in healing, um, to speak on our words of life of healing, I came across this example. And if you're from Korea, you probably know this pastor, David Younggi Chu. He's a pastor of the largest church in America, about 830 of Korea. of Korea. I mean, of Korea, of the world. Sorry. Um, in the world, it's 830,000 people. Uh, so it's his story that I'm sharing. But one day he went to meet with a neurosurgeon. And he said, the neurosurgeon said to him, 
Did you know that the speech center of the brain rules over all of our nerves? And Dr. Chu said, of course, have you read the book of James? Which Proverbs and James, if you're going to learn about words, you're going to land on those two. Um, but the neurosurgeon continues to explain that when you speak verbally, I am weak, literally the nerves in your body begin to come limp and they become weak. And when you speak verbally, I am strong, the strength in your nerves flows through your body into your muscles. And um, when older people, they did a study, he said, when they started saying, I have no purpose, I have no reason, their bodies biologically, scientifically, it showed, start to break down by that simple power of their words speaking out. And the words that we speak, he's said this, that strengthen us will literally in our lives cause decay or they'll bring forth life. Good. Good. Yeah. So... <clears throat> the, the other story I wanted to share, the first point I wanted to say is that, that when you agree with words of healing, it shifts your entire mentality towards life. The second would be that it gives purpose and it gives hope. So the story she just shared just <clears throat> accentuates the reality of the, the reason we need hope and the effect yeah. of having hope is that it literally is the difference between life and death. Yeah. Um, an example you want to share the Jeff Colson yeah. story? So our words, they're going to build people up or they're going to break people down. And it's, I mean, there's actually, there's a scientific, you can look it up on YouTube, Dr. Masaru Emoto. And I'm going to share two stories. One scientific and one is personal. So the scientific story is they would, hundreds of times they've tested this, but speak one word of life over water, freeze the water, and look at the formation of what happened to the water. So they would speak words such as life, peace, harmony. And each formation that happened in the water, it looked like a beautiful water crystal snowflake, all like symmetrical, like there was five parts to it, but stunning, beautiful. And then they would speak words that were not life-bringing or death, like I think it was anger, demon, Hitler, over the water, froze it, look under, looked at it under a microscope, and it was just a blob. There was absolutely no formation, no beauty, and it was just like a big blob of water. Like nothing had happened, and yet all the other factors had remained the same. And I'm like, if that's one word, how much more powerful is us agreeing with what God has said over our own lives, over the lives of the people in our families, our community, our culture, and so this... And those people didn't even know Jesus. Those people didn't know Jesus. I mean, when you look it up, there's Buddhist examples. You know, there's all different um, examples, but it's the power of the word that you really see. Good. And this other test or story is personal. Last week, he shared the story of Karen Kapilian. That was true. I was about six or seven and was horrifically... Catch you up. My mom and dad are here. If anyone wants to say hi, Susan and Dick. Um, so they'll know this story well, but I'm just going to do it very fast. To it, well, just a little correction, but to bring it into full context, the story of Jeff Colson. Okay, so Karen Kapilian was a little bit awkward girl. She wasn't a part of the cool crowd, popular crowd of you can be in a seven-year-old, and I really wanted to fit in. So my friend Jenny Dugan would say, hey, let's be mean to Karen. Let's push her in between this piano at piano lesson. Let's force her to eat fate fruit. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's, I mean, who says that? No one, except a seven-year-old that really wants to fit in. And so this poor girl. Demons. 
yeah, I was listening to demons, clearly, traumatize her. She will go home to her mom crying. And I did this for probably that whole year with my friend Ginny Dugan because we wanted to fit in. Fast forward, I've come to Jesus. I'm going to a Presbyterian church, and I see this woman who's now a woman, Karen Capillion. Instantly, I recognize her. I'm like, oh, that's Karen Capillion. And I, I run away. I leave the, the, I'm like, I know what I did was so hurtful. And so I literally run away, walk away, and I'm like, okay, oh, got to sit down. Uh, you know, clear tunnel vision. Next week, she sees me, and then she recognizes me. She tells me this, and she runs away. Because that's like, I'm like the giant in her land. Someone that you go home as a child. I mean, now being on the parent end, I cannot imagine if Finn or Jude or Eloise Selena comes home to me. Mom, I was, this girl did this to me today, and it hurt me so bad. They wouldn't have the word bully, but tears streaming. Third time, I see her. I go up to her. Finally, Christian's praying for me at this point. Give me the courage to ask forgiveness. And I look at her and I say, Karen, I just wanted to tell you I am so sorry for what I did. I imagine that that must have brought you so much pain. And she's like, you're right. It did. But that day when I would go home and I would be in tears to my mom, she wouldn't say, how dare she? Why did she do that? She would say, Karen... We can do nothing, but we can pray. So as a six, seven-year-old child, Karen Capillion's mom, her response was, let's pray. Okay, so that was the power of words, the power of seed form. Fast forward to about 15 years later, I come to know Jesus. And as you know, I'm not going to fill out this whole story, but I was the black sheep in my family. They all thought I was crazy. What is this thing that you've done? My mom sent my brother-in-law Daniel to me to get Jesus out of me. You've heard this story. Um, And for 15 years, it was sort of my wilderness season of being like, no, Jesus is real. I'm standing upon his word. Even though it's different than everything I've experienced in my life, I'm going to pursue him. And Daniel, my brother-in-law, who at the time was, I'd say atheist, but more almost agnostic, literally had a mountaintop experience where he came to faith on a mountaintop, radical, was an alcoholic, 60 pounds overweight, is transformed. This is only about, so 15, or when I was five or seven, me and Karen Capillion, about 15 years later, come to Jesus. 15 years after that, the least likely person in our family that I would think would become sold out for God, Daniel Colson, comes to faith. And, yeah, like radical. Actually, today, it's so incredible. It's how many years? Three? They've known. They've planted two churches, done mission trips. Their whole family knows Jesus. My parents now love God. Like, the story just goes on and on. And today they're actually getting ordained by Bill Johnson and Chris Valton at a conference. And Randy Clark. So it's like this is people that knew were so far from God. And today, on this Sunday, they are getting recognized before man and before God at a conference in, with their, kind of their mother church in New Mexico, which is just, is epic. So, right? I'm like, God, you were so good. I'm like, I want to get ordained by Bill Johnson and Randy Clark. Like, are you kidding me? But then you celebrate other, you know, other people's breakthroughs. So, Daniel was probably, I'm imagining, an atheist and agnostic and very hard towards Father God because his father, Jeff Colson, 
was, just went through a lot of personal struggles. He had tried to commit suicide multiple times, was on different drugs, high and low, um, and wasn't really there. So Daniel, Christian's kind of been discipling him, or I guess we have started an alpha course about a month ago. And to this alpha course comes a woman, and the woman really enjoyed the alpha course, and she's like, well, I'm going to go to the, their church service on Sunday. So the woman shows up to the church service on Sunday, and Daniel's preaching on Caleb going, and Joshua going into the promised land and seeing the giants in the land. He's like, I would have been that giant. I wouldn't have been the Caleb, his, kind of giving his testimony. I would have been, oh, there's Daniel Colson, there's Daniel Colson, there's Daniel Colson, there's Daniel Colson. And after, so he was repeating his first and his last name. After his sermon, my sister was speaking to a woman, and he could see she's clearly distressed what's happening. And he goes up to her, and he says, is your, what's, are you okay? What's going on? And she asked him, is your last name Colson? And she said, yeah, why? And she said, well, about, I'm not sure the timeline exactly, but I had a little casita, a little house in Mesilla, New Mexico, and God told me to rent this house out to a man. And the man I rented out to, I need to share my faith with him. She said, Daniel, and this man had, when did he die, guys? When, how many years ago? About 15 years ago, Daniel's father had passed away from complications of drugs, I think, right? Five years ago. Yeah. Five years ago. Fifteen. His dad did not die 15 years ago. <laughs> this is family We're doing the message. We're going to have to disagree. There's no way that was 15 years ago. Okay, keep going. You're doing great. Eight Thank years you. ago. Okay. So part of the content, Daniel's dad, Jeff Colson... Died before, we'll deal with Dan at Thanksgiving. before yeah. Daniel ever knew Jesus. Because Daniel got to meet the Lord about, and my sister and their children th about three years ago at Easter time. And so this woman says, that man that I rented your house out to, that or my house out to, I shared Jesus with him. And he came to faith. And his name was Jeff Colson. <laughs> and then he, she said... And then I had a dream, and it was a dream of a man dressed in white. And three days after I had that dream, I heard that Jeff Colson had passed from this life onto the next. So we're just speaking of the seeds of your word. Sometimes in life, we don't get to see the fruit of our good seeds we plant, but sometimes you do. And so it was so beautiful because Daniel's had these thoughts like, God, I wish I had known you so I could have shared with my father. And the Lord's like, I know, but guess what I've done? And he brought this woman to their alpha course and then to the church that he, Sunday that he actually was saying Daniel Colson, which you, I would never like, Susanna Martinson. Here I am, Susanna Martinson. You don't say that. So, I mean, every bit of it, you just see God and the beauty of speaking forth seeds of life and seeds of life that bring out ultimately eternal life. Yeah. So some of us today just need to be reminded that if you've been a complete failure with your words in the past, the Lord has been stirring and working in people's lives for those around you that you haven't even started praying for yet or didn't know that you needed to. 
And he is working when we're not working. When we're failing, he's still sowing seed. And he's using other people to bless your life. Yeah. And there are things that you're going you're gonna to have the fruit, the harvest from in your life that you never planted those seeds from. You never watered. You did nothing to deserve. And the beautiful thing is like Daniel now, all he, the, all he does with his life is plant seeds in good soil. And there's constant fruit coming out of it. And you know what? That whole process, you know, with his dad, he wasn't doing anything, in, in his opinion, to do anything towards life. And the Lord still was. Before, he was, yeah. before his yes, the Lord was still agreeing with who he was and around his family. And most of us will never find out those stories until eternity of how the Lord's been working in our lives. Let that fuel you. Let that, let that story go deep into your spirit to allow you to realize that in all of my failures and all the things that still don't feel like the Lord has done anything with, remember, he is always planting seed and he is always looking for those that will agree with him and agree with life. So yeah. again, that, that number one was shift your entire mentality of life and two, it gives you, when you agree with words of healing, it gives you purpose and hope. Three, we're going to skip this one and get to it next week. It's to bring reconciliation and restoration. And then finally, number four, is that there is eternal and generational impact uh, on, our, on our words. There's one last little story I want to I share with you. Um, there, uh, the book that, that I've been reading is really helpful by Robert Morris on the power of words. Um, you can all read it if you'd like. You can get it anywhere you sell books. But he, he shares this story of, uh, of this seminary professor. I, as a seminary professor, at one point in my life, really uh, thought this was kind of unique and cute. But um, in short, this, this seminary professor was, was on vacation with his family in, in Tennessee. And they went to, I think it was one of those, you know, country morning breakfast with all kinds of wonderful things that will give you a heart attack like biscuits, gravy, and bacon. Thank you, Jesus. And, and so they were, they were at breakfast, and he could see this, you know, delightful, you know, southern man with beautiful white hair with that draw, probably looking a little bit like uh, the, the, the Colonel Sanders walking around, just interacting with people, having a good time. And he's like, I really don't feel like interacting with one of these kinds of people today. I hope he doesn't come our way. Guess who came up to his table and sparked the convo was Colonel Sanders. And, and as Colonel Sanders started interacting, he's like, oh, what, what do you do? Where are you from? He goes, oh, I'm a seminary professor. And he goes, oh, I've got a story for you about a preacher. And he goes, there's a little boy that grew up. Just you look out the window there, that mountain across the way there. And there was this little boy uh, who grew up. <clears throat> his, his mother had him. No one knew who the daddy was. And so everyone in that little town would just look at the little boy and always be reminding him, hey, son, where's your daddy? And you go into the post office, you go to the store, people ask him, who's your daddy, son? It was always a reminder that you don't have a father or that your mother had you outside of marriage in a religious southern culture where everyone went to church. He still went to church. Every Sunday he'd sneak in late, sneak out uh, early, and uh, so that he wouldn't have to live with the stares of everyone at church. One Sunday, this uh, new preacher that had, that had started to lead the congregation was at the back and uh, saw him running out. He goes, hey, son, who's your daddy? With purity. And there was an awkward pause. And it was like everything stopped. And all eyes were on that preacher and that little boy. Picking up on the presence of the Holy Spirit, 
and the awkwardness of the crowd, that pastor goes, oh, I know who your daddy is. You're a child of God. And a big smile came across that boy's face, and he ran out forever changed. You can imagine that there was probably a big shift in the congregation with a leader like that. And that wasn't the last interaction they probably had. But in a moment, that boy says, that changed him forever. And Colonel Sanders was looking at him at the end of that story. And he goes, you know, if that preacher wouldn't have said that to me, I probably wouldn't have mounted much to anything. You guys have a great day. And went on his way. And as they were checking out, they asked the waitress, uh, was, you, know, you know that man was to deal with that kind of Colonel Sanders looking guy? And she goes, oh, <laughs> everyone knows him. That's Ben Hooper, former governor of Tennessee. And again, it's just an incredible reminder that one exchange of one word prophesies words of healing. And whenever that little boy, at the end of that story, was, he would say, wherever I went and someone asked who my daddy was, my response became from that day forward, I'm a child of God. And that's the reality we all live in. First and foremost, we're children of God. That's our identity. Everything else about us that the world puts on us is not who we are. It, is a, it can be a partial truth. It's not the full truth. It's not the greater truth. It's not the spiritual truth. There is a superior reality to every physical reality that we live in. We have the access to life or death. It's in the power of the tongue. So if worship team could come up, we want to close with an invitation. We want the Holy Spirit to minister to us this morning into the wounds of the words that have been spoken over us. And as we do that, uh, there's just a, there's a couple questions we want to ask. Where do you need to forgive this morning? Maybe there's, maybe you were Karen Kapelian. <laughs> maybe you need to forgive yourself. Um, maybe there's somebody else you need to go this week and reconcile with. But ultimately, forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel, and it starts with releasing it. There is always a measure of forgiveness that we need to release. And secondly, receive it. Receive the forgiveness that you want to give out and that you need to receive for yourself. So why don't you stand? I'm just going to pray over us. If you guys want to close your eyes, you can keep them open too. It just removes distraction. Father, I thank you that when you look at this company of people, you see a room full of sons and daughters. Sons and daughters who carry the power 
to impact eternity with their words. The psalmist actually spoke to his soul. And today you might be in a space where you need to speak to your soul to remind it of who he is and who you are. Psalm 42, it says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? And then the psalmist commands his soul. So it's his spirit leading your soul, which is your mind, will, emotions. And he says, Hope in God, for I again shall praise him for the help of his presence. So today you might need to stand, and as we end with a worship song, to command your soul to praise him. Command your soul to hope in God. Or you might need to stand and say, God, I forgive that Susanna Martin, or I was then Susanna Emery, if you were that Karen Cavillian. And what are you speaking over me today? What are the words of life over me as your son, me as your daughter? And then a third part to ask, God, what words do you want to come forth out of my mouth? What words do you want me to speak that will create a new reality in someone else's world? So Jesus, I ask you just come and speak to your bride, speak to your children. Words of life, words of hope, words of destiny.